0: Hello and welcome to In Conversation with, the Lancet HIV podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Peter Hayward, and for our May edition, I'm joined by Andrea Wirtz of John Hopkins School of Public Health and Sari Reisner of Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School. And they're going to be talking to me about their research, looking at HIV epidemiology among transgender women in the Southern and Eastern United States, and the interesting and innovative approach they took to study this topic. Before we get to Andrew and Sari, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of other pieces in this month's issue. First, there's a feature in which Christabel Lagami talks to young adults living with HIV in sub-Saharan Africa about the power of social media to educate and provide connections. And we also have a must-read study from Gentry Dawood and colleagues looking at the rollout of dolutegravir-based therapy as first-line treatment for HIV in South Africa. But now, Let's get to Andrea and Sari. Now I'm joined by Andrea Wirtz and Sari Reisner to talk about their study of HIV incidence and mortality in transgender women in the eastern and southern United States. Hello there, Andrea. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hello, and thank you.
0: And Sari, I'm so grateful for your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. First, Andrea, I'd like to understand a bit more about the background of your study. In HIV care and research, we're very used to talking about key populations who are disproportionately affected by HIV, and transgender women are widely recognized as one of those populations. Can you perhaps explain what factors contribute to a high burden of HIV among trans women in the eastern and southern United States?
1: Thanks, Peter. I think this is really a big question to answer in a short time, but there are probably two overarching areas that are really critical to understanding the increased burden of HIV among transgender women. First are stigma and discrimination of transgender women. These are terms that we use a lot in HIV research, and they really reflect societal attitudes towards different people or behaviors. In the United States, this can really start at the top with legislation. Despite significant effort over the last several years, there is no federal legislation that protects trans people from discrimination. That leaves it to the states to develop legislation, which can be diverse and include, for example, whether trans people are protected in hate crime laws, whether the panic defense laws have been banned, as well as include non-discrimination in public accommodations, employment, religious exemptions and service provision, adoption and parental rights, changing legal name and gender markers on identification, and youth laws such as those that are related to bullying and inclusion. There are also health-related laws that provide for coverage of gender-affirming care, which evidence has shown is critical to improved physical and mental health for transgender people. We know that tracking from the Movement Advancement Project, that there are only 17 of 50 states in Washington, DC, that have legislation that protects transgender people or supports access to gender-affirming care. Another 15 states have low to moderate numbers of laws that protect against discrimination or provides access to care. But really notably, 18 states have explicitly negative laws for transgender people, meaning that in general terms, they permit discrimination in certain conditions and or directly prohibit access to or provision of gender affirming care for transgender people. In addition to these, in the last legislative season, there were more than 100 anti-trans related laws that were introduced at the state level. Most of these negative laws collectively are largely in the U.S. South, which is one of the geographic areas that's most heavily affected by the HIV epidemic and where a larger proportion of Black people in the U.S. reside. This then relates to the HIV burden among transgender women because the historic and ongoing discrimination prevents people from realizing their fullest potential in education, employment, income, and then ultimately access to private insurance through employment benefits. This relates to the second piece that I mentioned, which is what we would consider to be situated vulnerabilities that increase someone's risk for HIV and which may be exacerbated for transgender women of color. For some people, historical and ongoing discrimination may mean that they have, for example, limited access to PrEP because of costs or limitations on what insurance may cover. It may also create a situation in which someone has to decide between prioritizing their efforts to access gender-affirming care or accessing HIV prevention, even when HIV is considered an important health concern. In cases where services are available or covered, one may have limited access to HIV services due to concerns of being mistreated in a health facility. Transgender women experience high levels of violence from partners, but also from other people. And this can also increase risk for HIV um, acquisitions through a number of pathways. In one of our other analyses, we found that concerns about safety and transit to health facilities was really associated with laboratory-confirmed sexually transmitted infections. This is an important finding because it highlights that for some transgender women, A decision to seek STI services or even other health services may not just be a calculation of the time or cost to attend those services, but really a calculation of whether they will be safe or harmed in the process of seeking care. That historical and ongoing discrimination can also have negative impacts on mental health and substance use, which can also increase risk for HIV acquisition through a number of other pathways. And finally, some but not all transgender women may have relationships with cisgender men. And if they engage in unprotected uh, receptive anal sex, we know that biologically, this can increase risk for HIV acquisition. These are just some scenarios that may explain the elevated burden of HIV among transgender women. But it's important to remember that the population of transgender women is very diverse. And so these situations may not be the experience for everyone. And it can also really depend on the context in which they reside.
0: Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I realize that asking you to sort of answer that question with it's a very complex area, and I think you've done a fantastic job of summarizing some of the key issues but also highlighting the complexity of it all. So thank you so much for that, Andrea. And now, sorry, despite being recognized as a key population, you point out in your paper that there is little, little epidemiological evidence about HIV
2: in trans women in general. Why is that? Thanks, Peter. There's, uh, you know, really a number of reasons, foremost of which there's been a lack of inclusion of gender identity data uh, in much of public health uh, surveillance. Um, so, so despite the recognition of trans people and particularly transgender women as a priority population, like, for example, in the ending the epidemic strategy in the U.S., uh, that hasn't sort of followed along. Uh, the data collection and epi surveillance hasn't kind of followed along, caught up with that yet. So- uh, for example, the U.S., uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, you know, really only recently conducted the National HIV Behavioral Surveillance uh, uh, that looks at the epidemiology uh, of HIV in the U.S. Uh, and started to report HIV estimates. Um, so that's really uh, that's really the issue. Uh, at issue is, is the sort of counting, if you will, quote unquote. You know, the history uh, that we have is one where there has been a conflation of uh, sexual and gender minority people. That is, uh, for men who have sex with men uh, and transgender women having an aggregation uh, of those two populations, um, and that has often um, led to having enrollment numbers, let's say in epi cohorts that are you know insufficient insufficient for trans women specific estimations of incidence and risks and also mortality. Um, so there really is that need for population specific data among transgender women. Uh, and and this study was really one of the first to um to build that out in the US context, uh, particularly in the eastern and southern US. You know, there have been some data in San Francisco uh, from the transnational study a cohort uh looking at HIV inc- incident estimation, but uh our cohort uh, really in the eastern and southern US fills a, a very unique gap. Um, not only uh, in terms of looking at kind of some of the broader uh quote unquote vulnerabilities that transgender women are facing, um but also that might be sort of consistent with other key populations, but also understanding the unique bu- vulnerabilities of this population. Um, things that are, um, as Andrea was talking about earlier, really sort of driven by types of minority stress and gender minority stress that, that transgender women uh, experience in other populations may not. <laughs> Thank
0: you for that. And that's uh,
2: nice and uh, yeah, it ties together
0: Andrea's response and yours and sort of sets up Sets up the study nicely. So, Andrea, perhaps you could tell me then what what you set out to do in this study.
1: Thanks, Peter. Yeah, as Sari mentioned, there was really a dearth of longitudinal research in the US among transgender women, and this is important because we know that cohorts and longitudinal research are important to informing HIV prevention strategies and monitoring the epidemic trends over time. And whether policy changes or programs that are implemented in the US have an impact for the population. So, our team was really interested in developing a cohort that was specifically for transgender women so that we could provide data to support HIV prevention strategies that are tailored to the needs of transgender women and acceptable to them. As we were discussing this, there was an opportunity for funding by the National Institutes for Health to conduct digital HIV epidemiologic research. We applied for that opportunity, recognizing that there would be valuable opportunities to leverage technology and engage transgender women in HIV research. We were cautious, though, because we did not want to develop a completely remote or digital cohort, as we knew from past experiences and feedback from our community partners that technology access is diverse. And some people simply prefer to see research, uh, our research staff in person or to complete study activities while they're accessing other services. So our goal was really to make the study as accessible as possible to all, and to create a. And so we created a multimodal cohort. The first was um, the first mode that we implemented was a technology enhanced site based mode that required participants to participate in person at baseline and annual visits at six sites across eastern and southern U.S. This allowed us to teach participants how to use our study app and um, to conduct oral HIV self testing. For all other interim visits during their 24 to 48 months of follow-up, they had the option to participate remotely or in person. The second mode was a digital mode that followed a similar protocol but allowed participants to complete study activities completely remotely. This was open to trans women in the same six cities and 70 other cities of similar size and characteristic in eastern and southern U.S. Our overall goal with the study and with the cohort was to measure HIV incidents and evaluate risk factors for HIV. However, because there was a dearth of longitudinal health research generally for trans women, we also used this as an opportunity to measure other health and social issues that are salient to the community. To that end, we did extensive formative research and we worked very closely with community partners and our community advisory board to really ensure that the study approach was acceptable and that we were asking the right questions. Over the course of time, um, we did hear from community members that some participants had passed away, and that stimulated us to make really exhaustive efforts to try to ascertain what happened uh, to participants who had been lost to follow up. Ultimately, we felt that it was important to recognize and report mortality estimates alongside our, alongside our findings of HIV incidents.
0: And so then, what would you say are the most interesting and important findings of your study?
1: Well, we ultimately enrolled 1,312 participants across both the digital and the site-based modes, and we followed these participants for 24 to 48 months. As of our analysis in 2022, the participants had contributed 2,730 person-years to the study. We found that HIV incidence for the entire cohort was 5.5 per 1,000 person-years. HIV incidence, though, was higher for Black participants at 19.3 per 1,000 person-years, and among those who were living in the South at 10.3 per 1,000-person-years, which unfortunately really reflects what we see in the U.S. epidemic. As I mentioned, we learned about participant deaths during follow-up, which I think we can very easily call these premature deaths because they were attributed to homicide, suicide, overdose, and other unknown causes. Only two were attributed to health causes. We estimated that mortality within the cohort was 3.3 per 1,000-person-years, So you can see these are at similar rates to what we see in HIV incidents. Mortality was higher for uh, Latina trans women at 9.9 per 1,000 person years, and people who lived in the South at 7.7 per 1,000 person years. These might actually be underestimates because these are the participants who were lost to follow-up, but for whom we were able to gather information about what happened to them. Well, we had approximately 80% retention over the course of follow-up and through the COVID-19 pandemic. There are some participants who were lost to follow-up that we simply don't know what happened to them. Ultimately, we presented the mortality results because as public health professionals, we felt that it's imperative for others in the HIV field to understand the many other other issues that affect the well-being and overall survival of transgender women. And within the field, we have to address these issues if there's any expectation of ending the HIV epidemic for transgender women in the United States. Importantly, we found there were also shared predictors of HIV acquisition and premature deaths, and these included residents in southern cities, sexual partnerships with cisgender men, and use of stimulants. Conversely, participation in the digital mode and seeking care for gender transition were inversely associated with both outcomes. This tells us that there are really multi-level interventions, meaning those that span individual, partner-level, and structural interventions that could be implemented to reduce HIV and simultaneously support the health and well-being of transgender women.
0: Yeah, that's really a remarkable, you know, a remarkable number of participants, remarkable retention and follow-up for this setting, I think, and, you know, and that's providing just such a a wealth of interesting data. I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, sort of the recruitment and the two different modes you had. I just wondered if you could talk perhaps about whether recruiting participants, both in person and online, do you think that that's given you sort of a good all round view
2: of how HIV is affecting trans women in this region of the USA? You know, the um, hybrid cohort model uh, is a very important one, uh, you know, that combines um, in person uh, and the online uh, modalities, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's not just about sort of recruiting in person uh, or digitally. Um, because there were people who, some of whom were recruited online and participated in person and vice versa. Um, but the point is to have this flexibility um, in types and ways of participating. Um, so for example, this was great for retention. If some folks moved out of the area, let's say they were site-based participants, uh, you know, they could transfer over to the digital cohort. Um, so that's really important. Um we did see some very notable differences uh, across the different modes. Um, so participants uh, you know that that really are important to consider for the for the research and for future uh, programming. Uh, you know so for example, um, the uh, in- person uh, participants you know had a younger mean age, uh, a higher proportion were um, people of color, were Spanish speaking and were born outside the us. Uh, there were lower uh, education and employment rates. Um, higher proportion were living below the federal poverty level, um, rates of uh, public insurance were higher. Um, so, you know, and, and being recruited, uh, through a friend, um, you know, rather than another source, um, was highest for the, the site-based, uh, relative to the digital. So, you know, in, in some ways, when you look at the two cohorts, you could say, uh, or the two modalities, you could say like, it's a sort of tale of two cities, you know, in, in some ways we just see very different, um, uh profiles uh in a sense. Um and so in that sense, then sort of having a combined modality, oh, you know, we think might give us a kind of more representative or generalizable sample uh, of the eastern and, and southern US. So I think, you know, there is an in- increasing interest in digital cohorts, um, particularly by funders um, right now. I think some of the lessons that we've learned uh, in this study is that we need to be uh, very careful about that. Um, you know, it's possible that we're not going to see a proportion of the population uh, if we just move digitally that we would otherwise see in person. And in fact, a very uh, uh, vulnerable population. Um, you know, we did find that the seroconversions and the mortality burden was highest uh, among the site beast participants um, as opposed to the digital um participant people who are participating uh, digitally. So, uh, you know, there's definitely trade-offs uh, in terms of, you know, transitioning from site-based to digital only. Um, but ultimately, you know, the population is probably sort of somewhere in the middle, if you would say, um, you know, where when you put the two pictures together, in this case of the site-based uh, and the digital, uh, we think that you get a, a sort of broader uh, picture. Um, the other thing to note is that, um, you know, Telephone disconnection um, was associated with Siri conversion, having, having had a, dis- a disconnected telephone. So I think, you know, that that's not sort of an online per se, but it is a sort of a digital um, aspect to um, technology. And I think, you know, we really need to be careful that we're not going to reproduce inequities in, say, digital access or technology access. I mean, we could even widen those um, potentially uh, if we had digital-only programming. So, you know, while there is a push in definitely a role uh, for digitally digital cohorts and digitally delivered services. Uh, You know, it's very important that that's not the only uh, way that we reach people uh, and that we do um, really, if we're going to do that, also intentionally outreach to communities of color, um, communities uh, that may be experiencing uh, social determinants such as um, unemployment in disproportionate ways. Thanks for that. I think that's a really,
0: really important message that, you know, I think we're often sort of thinking about digital solutions and the power of using online, online technologies and digital technologies to sort of improve access to things and, mm. and what have you. But actually, it's important to retain that mix and, and you'll get the best picture if you provide people with a, a range of options for, for participating in research and care. And, and yeah, so thanks for that. And finally, Sarah, could you tell me what do you think uh, are the most important and immediate things that should be done to tackle the
2: high burden? Of HIV among trans women in the areas covered by the study? Um, so, there's certainly a need for multi level interventions. So, uh, meaning that interventions that are across a kind of individual level, you know, we found, for example, that um, uh, a stimulant use was highly, it's highly associated um, with a- HIV um, and um, being PrEP indicated. Um, interpersonal factors. Um, so, for example, um, partners' PrEP use. Um and then structural vulnerabilities. Um, you know, for example, we saw a high burden about uh for those with HIV in the South um, and as also for mortality. And I think now more than ever, you know, we see uh there's a lot of legislative, uh a, a very uh, difficult legislative climate right now, particularly in the South, uh around gender-affirming care um for young people, but but also increasingly uh for for bans and criminalization for older people. So um, you know, we need to be careful and, and assess those structural issues as well, um, which are also connected to things like economic precarity ultimately. Um, you know, as we spoke about earlier, uh the the pieces that are fueling the epidemic really are around um, you know, discrimination, stigma, uh, and so forth. So these multi-level interventions will not only hopefully be able to reduce HIV, but importantly support overall health and well-being in trans women. So You know, when we speak with community, when we talk to our um, advisory board and, you know, I've been doing this work for um, more than 15 years in trans communities. and been part of trans communities myself, we hear people telling us the vital importance of context, you know, that we we have to be context uh, relevant and be really expansive in the way that we view prevention, HIV prevention. And with this study, you know, literally, we must recognize that HIV prevention is occurring in the context of people fighting for their lives, right? I mean, that that's this sort of piece around mortality as being a very real part of people's lived experiences and um, needing us to recognize that context for prevention so you know increasingly combination uh, packages uh, for example uh, so we found in this study that gender transition uh, was associated with a lower risk of seroconversion and death so uh, you know this suggests perhaps greater access to gender-affirming care co-location uh, gender-affirming care let's say in prep services Uh, and so forth, you know, integrating other needs, other health concerns um, might be a uh, aspect that would be important for us to do. Likewise, uh, comorbidity of of STIs, uh, history of STIs, uh, you know, is highly associated with seroconversion. So, you know, the integration of gender affirming STI prevention and treatment and care services, you know, ultimately, you know, this study, you know, we see that, you know, rather than kind of being a, a, a quote unquote, hard to reach population, we were able to recruit a, a large sample of, of trans women you know, doing so through community engagement, through a mix of modalities in a hybrid mode. Uh, you just like to problematize this notion of kind of hard to reach uh, and really say that like, you know, with community, we can reach this population and therefore we will need to have a high levels of community engagement in addressing the epidemic and being able to roll out these, these multi-level interventions. Um, so I think, you know, community... Uh, engaged, informed, and and led solutions will also be an important uh, component of this.
0: In, increasingly, the the notion of hard to reach populations is is sort of starting to be questioned. I think, a, you know, I think the populations are there, and you just need to be a bit inventive about how you how you reach them, mm-hmm. and just do things a bit differently, try a bit harder. So, yeah, thank you, thank you for that. Draws, draws the interview to a So thank you, uh, Andrea and Sari. Thank you both so much for, for joining me today. It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you so much. And if you found that interesting, you might also like to read an article from our December 2020 issue on PrEP awareness and engagement among trans women in South Africa. And hot off the press, a paper looking at the HIV care cascade among transgender women, also in South Africa, which was published on April the 26th and will be included in our upcoming June issue. Well, that's it for the May issue. Please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so that you're sure to join us next month when we'll continue the conversation.